On this episode of The Playbook, I have the legend, the executive director of the NHLPA, that's right, Donald Fuhr. And we're going to talk about what it took to not only be the executive director of the NHLPA, but also the MLB. Remember, the truth vibrates the fastest here on Entrepreneurs, The Playbook. This is Entrepreneurs, The Playbook, where each week I bring you some of the greatest athletes, celebrities, and entrepreneurs to talk about their personal and professional playbook to success and what made them champions on the field and in the boardroom. I'm your host, David Meltzer. I have a legends of sports and entrepreneurship and business, Don Pure, executive director of the NHLPA. Don, welcome to the playbook. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Well, you know, it's so exciting to have you because one of the things I want to talk to you about is leadership. And, you know, with the background that you have uh, being the executive director of both the MLB at one time and, of course, now the NHLPA, what are some of the lessons that you learned about leaders? And then what advice would you give to young people about leadership? Well, in, in the context in which I've done it, I think it comes down to this. My role is first and perhaps most importantly, political. My job is to educate, educate the membership. It is to unify them. It is to insist that they make decisions and be prepared to follow up on them. The closest analog I can give you is, a, is that of being a prime minister in a parliamentary democracy. And what I mean by that is I can function as long as I have support and hopefully lopsided support of the membership. If I lose that, whether I'm right or wrong doesn't really matter. They have to get somebody else for that job. So how do you do that? Rule number one, taught to me by my mentor, Marvin Miller, who basically founded Players Associations, is you always tell them the truth as bluntly as you can figure out a way to do it. Sometimes, like in a lot of endeavors in life, you have to simplify, but the core issues, it turns out, are not very difficult to understand, and you have to be patient, and then most importantly, you have to listen and recognize that the ultimate decision-making power is theirs, not yours. And in the context of that, you know, I've ran Lee Steinberg Sports and Entertainment for years. One of the things about all players associations that we had learned is the number one hurdle for an executive director is apathy. Uh, and it seems to be, you know, whether it's Dee Smith, yourself, or others work with, that they're constantly trying to educate and empower as much as they are to lead. What, what do you think can be done to help facilitate less apathetic behavior within, especially in the context of highly paid, high paid athletes? You know, how do we work through the, the issue of apathy so that we can educate them to protect their, their own lives and their own livelihood? Well, I think two things. First thing is, I guess three things. First thing is you need to inform them on an ongoing basis as to what the issues are and how you spend your time all day. What do you, what do, you do? And like any group of 750 people, you'll have 10, 15% that will really pay attention, 10, 15% you can't reach. Most of the rest that will say, call me if there's a crisis. Second thing is when a player goes through an issue, he has a grievance, he has a dispute, there's a disciplinary case he's negotiating a contract, you do your level best not only to aid and assist, but to make sure he understands that the collective bargaining agreement that the players negotiate 
is what determines his contract. When can he negotiate? Is there arbitration? Is there compensation? What are the limits of the salary cap and so on? Which leads to the third point, which is that none of the rules under which the player lives are governed by some act of Congress or mystical commandment from on high, you know, top of some mountain in Tibet or something. They are what is bargained. And the critical thing for bargaining is that players have to be present at the table in the room. That serves two purposes. Number one, they learn and learn quickly what the real issues are and what the owners say, because the owners in that setting aren't simply patting them on the back. Um, and that's important. But secondly, you know, labor relations in North America is set up on the adversary system. And you don't get what's just or equitable or fair or anything like that. You get what you can negotiate. The ultimate labor relations tool on the management side is a lockout. We're not going to pay you. Or on the player side is a, is a strike. Well, it turns out the owners don't much care if I go to work or not. They do care if the players do. So having them in the room saying what they will stand and fight for matters and it also serves to sort of galvanize a consensus among them. And through that, you know, very difficult position that you have, number one, just anyone that's involved in labor relations, labor negotiations, uh, but moreover, with the size, scope, and scale of the egos and the amount of dollars, it exacerbates and accelerates how difficult your job is. Uh, but even more impressive is that it all got turned upside down because now 100% of your players were presented with issues immediately with COVID. Uh, you know, we always have a certain percentage that you're involved with, that issues occur and, you know, but, you know, talk about going beyond a lockout or beyond a strike, COVID itself turned everything upside down. And now you had to, number one, have the bandwidth to deal with all of the issues that occurred, but yet you were able you know, to return to ICE and protect the players, the fans, the agreements that were in place, et cetera. What were some of the things that you did initially to create stability so that you could make the critical decisions and put the best interests of your players first? Uh, last year, year and two or three months has been the single most intense period of my 40 plus year career. It's 10, 12 hours a day, every day, almost always on the phone or on Zoom calls like we're doing now. Uh, so that's first. Secondly, it had an aspect to it that I've never faced before, and hopefully nobody in my position will ever have to face again. And that is the primary factor you're dealing with is not only outside your control. We don't know what the virus is going to do. We don't know what immigration is going to do. We don't know what various public health authorities are going to do, but it is also unpredictable. The, the range of possibilities is, is very wide indeed. So third, what that means is, obviously, you, you want to try to protect the players' jobs. You want to protect their health and safety and that of their families more. But you also want to work to protect the industry. Uh, the owners, it turns out, have very similar aims in this kind of a situation. So it created a uniformity of purpose, at least initially, which very rarely exists in sports collective bargaining and, and negotiations. And so one of the interesting things that came out of this 
was that Gary and I both realized, Gary Beckman, the commissioner, and I both realized very early on that we had common problems we couldn't control and couldn't be solved in the ordinary way. In the ordinary way, you could always make a deal, give the other guy what he wants and stop the bleeding if it was a bad situation. We couldn't do that here. So we had to work together and we talked to each other more frequently and more in depth probably than any sports union leader and commissioner ever has over the period of about 10 months. In terms of the players, um, because of things like Zoom and email and so on, what we were able to do is have regular conference calls in which we had literally hundreds of players on the phone. Sometimes they would go on for hours. You get all the questions out, you answer them, you tell people what you think, you listen to the criticisms, the upset, the concerns, and, and the ideas, and you end up with conclusions. And through that process, they make the critical decisions. My job is to, to negotiate what I think the best possible agreement is, explain that to them, but I can't make the deal without them. And last point in that regard is that in any group like this, and certainly on a sports team, there are leaders and then there are others. And there are different leaders very often with respect to off-ice issues, off-court issues, off-field issues, than there are while the, the game is being contested. They really stepped up. And I can't thank them enough. The notion that I or I with staff could do this by ourselves is just nonsense. Well, as a recovering lawyer and someone who ran a sports agency, I had so many of my friends who you know played college athletics like myself, obviously didn't have the talent or the desire sometimes in order to be a professional. So they moved into these dream jobs of wanting to be Jerry Maguire or even further commissioner of the league or an executive director of a league. Um, for you, I'd love for you to share your background and story on how you got into the role of your first executive director position at the MLB and how it differed from what you thought it was going to be. Oh, boy, we, we haven't got enough weeks for that. But <laughs> I guess <laughs> I, I, I guess I, I, I could say it as follows. Um, you know, you, you do have to be able to take advantage of opportunities, but you also have to have the opportunities come your way. And I was lucky. I left a position as a federal trial court law clerk, which is the best single professional decision I ever made, um, and was practicing labor law on the union side in Kansas City. And literally six or seven weeks into the job, the Kansas City Royals filed the lawsuit to overturn baseball free agency case, the Andy Messersmith case. And I ended up as local counsel on the case. I didn't try the arbitration case, but I did the trial work and I did the, the appellate work on it. I got to know Marvin Miller, his then general counsel, Richard Moss, who later became an extraordinarily successful player agent in baseball. And when Richard retired from the union to go represent Nolan Ryan and Fernando Valenzuela and people like that, Marvin asked me to come on as, as general counsel. And to answer your question most directly, I thought it was a legal job. It's not. It's an institutional job flooded with, with legal nuance. Then when Marvin retired and eventually within a year I succeeded him, um, 
I was in the unfortunate position of thinking that because I'd sat next to Marvin and had lunch with him four days a week for five years through a major negotiation and a strike that I understood what the job was. I didn't. The job is one in which you quite literally, if you take it seriously, you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders because every decision you make affects other people's families. And I'm about to say something, given your background, I am 100% certain you can agree with. In a normal union situation, or if you're a theatrical agent, you represent someone, you do a bad job, you negotiate a bad union contract. Three or four years later, five years later, you can redo it and you're doing it for the same people. You can fix it. Most professional athletes have one shot if they have that at the big deal. You screw it up, you're gone. Same thing is true in, in collective bargaining. Last thing I would say is that, you know, everybody thinks that, that what I do is, you know, hang out with athletes and, and go to sporting events. Uh, going to sporting events turns out to be work. And, and you, don't, you don't do it all that often, but you're dealing with pensions and healthcare and substance abuse issues and things like the Olympics and performance enhancing drugs and licensing and individual and group player rights of publicity and privacy and a whole rash of, of other things. That said, it's rewarding. And there is one advantage compared to most jobs like this. Um, it's pretty easy to imagine any of the major sports leagues in North America having declines in revenue. We just witnessed it or suffering in a depression or something. It's virtually impossible to imagine them going out of business. There's always going to be a residual fan base. And that makes things easier in the sense that the ultimate catastrophe really isn't there. We're not going to move the plant to Bangladesh. You know, on the other hand, because that's true, I think it also makes it easier to fight because the ultimate consequence isn't there. That's amazing. Oh, beyond that, too, you made a decision after the MLB to move in the same position to the NHLPA. What was your biggest reservation? Because I'm sure you were uh, afforded many opportunities outside of just being another executive director of a players association. Uh, what was your biggest uh, reservation about continuing that type of position within a different sport? Well, two things, but I'm going to answer your second uh, question first. As it turns out, when I left, there are virtually no opportunities available. There is no corporation in this country that will hire a union person. There are lots of, of management labor law firms that, that will ask me to negotiate against unions. Um, universities are concerned about their donors, which are in large part corporate. So the opportunities are vastly more limited than, than um, you would have thought. When I left baseball, I did it because it was the right time for my successor to come on. And I'd been there a long time at that part. I'd been the boss for 26 years. Um, I did some consulting for the hockey players. And basically, I liked them. And I got to, to know them. And I thought I could help them out in, in a negotiation they had coming up in 2012-13. I did not expect to stay there. But it, it turns out to be quite a quite a rewarding thing to do i mean you know it's it's there's lots of aggravations some much larger than, than than others but at the end of the day if you like the people you're working for and with and if you think you've made a positive difference on on balance 
then it can be pretty satisfying. And we were able to do one thing. We were able to negotiate the baseball pension plan into the NHL. And it's probably the fastest growing plan per participant, perhaps in history, because we have a unique situation in which um, at this point, there's just money going into the plan. There's no benefits being paid. Guys haven't gotten to the age yet. But that will make a very big difference for a whole lot of people down the road, just like it has in baseball. And, you know, that makes up for a lot, makes you feel good. Yeah, you've created quite a legacy for a lot of people that may not have had the capability to do so for themselves, especially my friends as hockey players. I don't think they were quite well equipped to do what you were able to do for them. Last uh, question, you know, I believe life's about lessons. Lessons will keep on coming until we learn them. Someone with the extraordinary education and background and experiences that you've had, I'd love to learn one greatest lesson you've experienced through your tremendous career. Well, there are a lot of sort of obvious things, but I suppose it is it it comes down to this. Um, one of the things that differentiates professional athletes from those who don't make it or the rest of us, other than the obvious, they're young male and athletically gifted um, in, in the areas I've been in, is that they're smart. It turns out that at the elite level, the, the game is almost entirely mental. If you haven't got the skill, you're not there. You know, occasionally you'll find a Wayne Gretzky, but that's really few and far between. And so they're smart and you take advantage of that. You tell them the truth, you explain, you answer questions, you invite them into the process, you make them feel as if they own it. Um, at least in this context, I'd recommend that approach to anyone who ever wanted to have a job like this. That is amazing. Don Fair, Executive Director of NABA, teaching us about the importance of integrity. The truth always vibrates the fastest. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Playbook as much as me. On a personal note, I just wanted to thank everyone for making The Playbook such a success. Don't forget to continue it by sharing, subscribing, and listening to your favorite episodes. This is Dave Meltzer with The Playbook.